0: Well, good morning, Mission Point. Welcome to everyone here. Welcome to everyone joining us from home today. It is such, such a privilege to worship together, to look at God's word together. Uh, yeah, man, that was great. Um, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Kyle Brenneman, and I, I get to serve here on staff as the worship director. And uh, this morning, though, I am wrapping up our series that we've entitled Strangers, Living for a Better Kingdom. And we've been looking at how Jesus says his kingdom is different in Matthew chapter 5. And I don't know about you, but over the course of this series, if if you've been with us, it's been a challenging one for me personally to see the number of ways that Jesus says, like, this is how my kingdom people are, and then feeling my own life and how sometimes it's just... Not the same and and wanting to be more like what Jesus says. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16. But before we dive into that, I want us to do a quick refresher on what we've looked at the past couple of months. As we've been making our way through Matthew chapter 5. So this passage here starts out with Jesus hiking up a mountain away from the crowds. And beginning to teach those who are willing to make that hike with him up the hill. And in Jesus' teachings here, he was making some hard to swallow statements about how his followers were to live very differently than the world around him. Because the cultural values of Jesus' kingdom were at odds with the kingdom and country that they lived in. And they're at odds with any country or kingdom here on earth. And then there are several statements here that over time have come to be known as the Beatitudes. And each one of those statements starts off with the phrase, blessed are the. Jesus calls people blessed, meaning, oh, how completely, unshakably, deeply happy. And the things that Jesus says about these people who are happy are odd. They're counterintuitive because they were countercultural. They were countercultural for the people then and they're countercultural for us now. Many of the things that have been ingrained to us about how to be happy and what to pursue and, and what is good, Jesus just turns on its head and says, my, my kingdom's different. My kingdom's better and my kingdom's different. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Oh, how completely happy are those who choose not to fight back. Blessed are those who mourn. Oh, how completely happy are those who feel and express their sadness and grief. Blessed are the peacemakers. Oh, how completely happy are those who don't try to win every fight, don't try to win every argument, but instead work to bring about harmony with those that they have tension with and work to bring about healing where there's been hurt and mistreatment. And with just one exception, All of this happiness that Jesus is talking about is rooted in the future that God has promised to those who follow Jesus, living out these kingdom values. This complete happiness is bound up, not in what happens now, but what God says will happen later. We will see God. We will be comforted. We will inherit the earth. We will be shown mercy. We will be satisfied. And some of that promise does show up now. But ultimately for the followers of Jesus, for those who have trusted him and live like he says we should here in Matthew 5, there is a complete unshakable deep happiness. Not because everything is going to turn out great here, but because Jesus' kingdom is eternal and God has promised that everything will turn out great there. That Jesus came and he died and he rose again and he's in heaven and he's preparing a place for us to be with God. And that is the good that brings us so much happiness. Deep, unshakable happiness. is placing our hope in that future that he has promised, not in what's going on here and now. And with that, we come to Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. And this is Jesus speaking here still to those who followed him that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus calls them salt of the earth and light of the world. And those are nice little metaphors. But what are we supposed to make of them? What did Jesus mean by this? Well, let's talk about salt. Looking back to Jesus' day, the two most significant uses of salt were for flavoring and seasoning food, And preserving food. And while using salt to season food is good, making it taste better, more enjoyable, salt's role in preserving food was absolutely vital. You know, we may not quite grasp the magnitude of this because we are so used to having a fridge in our kitchen that we just throw stuff in and we're good to go. But before that first Maytag rolled off the assembly line, one of the best ways of keeping food from rotting was to cure it with salt, especially meat. Salt naturally keeps bacteria from growing, which keeps the food from going bad. So without refrigeration, salt as a preservative was incredibly important and helped sustain life. So one way of understanding what Jesus is saying to his followers here. Is that they are here to help preserve goodness, to prevent the rot and decay that comes from sin. They're to promote what is good in the world to help fend off and push back the effects of sin, of decay and death. So when Jesus says, Be salt, he's saying, Do what you can. To promote goodness in the world and to, and to fight off the effects of sin. So then light. You are the light of the world. Light versus darkness is a metaphor used quite a bit in the Bible that we still use in a pretty similar way today. Light represents goodness and what, what is right. Revealing and doing the right thing. And lighting up, highlighting what is, what is good and right. And that's contrasted with darkness or night, which, is often, which often represents evil or, or hiding deeds we know we shouldn't be doing. So when Jesus tells his followers, you are the light of the world, he's saying you all are to put on display what is good in a world that doesn't know. That has it backwards Be a shining example of goodness. Put on display what is good, which in turn gives light to others, illuminating for them what is good, helping them see. Jesus then mentions a city on a hill thing, which feels a little sort of out there where it goes from talking about light to a city on a hill and then back to light. But if we think about what traveling would have been like in Jesus' day, particularly at night, no street lights out there in the country, No headlights on the donkey. No phone that lights up the background that tells you to turn in 300 feet. Maybe you have a lantern, but a lantern, like how far is that going to get you? Maybe like 15, 20 feet, be able to see. And to be out traveling at night where there's dangers of of thieves and robbers or wild animals. To be going along and see a city lit up on a hill would be a welcome sight to see a place where you can get rest and where you can recharge and where you can find a place to stay for the night and to even get your bearings where you see like, oh yeah, I am on the right road. There's that town up on the hill. So when we display our light, display what's good, we're we're a sort of outpost of, of goodness that people see and are drawn toward and are comforted by. So in calling his followers to be salt and light, Jesus is saying, be salt, promote and preserve what is good. Be light, display, put on display what is good. Now, when I say good, we need to remember something. Before we just charge ahead with the things that we think are good, we need to remember that Jesus just got done redefining what good is by his kingdom's standards. And it's unnatural to us. It's not what we tend to think about how we should act or what we often embrace as good. So for our lights to shine and for our salt to do its salty thing, we have to embody these beatitudes. When we are poor in spirit, when we mourn, when we are meek, when we hunger and thirst for what God says is truly good, when we're merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers, and when we're mistreated for doing what's right, that is when Jesus says we are being effective as salt and light. But on a practical level, what does that look like? What does it look like for us to preserve what is good and display what is good? You know, one way a lot of us tend to think about that here in the U.S. is, is through politics. From both sides of the aisle, we we try to influence politicians to pass laws that promote what we believe to be good for society. And that can be an effective way to preserve what's good in our world. Christians using their public witness and their their vote and their voice to advocate for laws that are just and promote the well-being and flourishing of all people. Thinking back to the Beatitudes, We can kind of understand this as part of of what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Wanting to see what is truly good take shape in our world. And seeing that, that laws and government policies are a way of helping shape that. At the same time, it would be a mistake to think that influencing lawmakers is the best way to preserve and promote what is good. Or even that we're fulfilling our calling to be salt and light by having political opinions or voting a certain way. I mean, think real quick about who Jesus is talking to here. This is a group of average, unimpressive people who followed him up the side of a mountain. They live in a place that's under the control of the Roman Empire. They don't even govern themselves. These people have zero political influence. I mean, Jesus isn't talking here to to Caesar or to a king. He's not addressing the Roman Senate. Jesus is talking to these unimpressive, uninfluential, unimportant, average people. And he's saying to them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It is your job to display and promote and preserve what is good in this world. So, what does that mean for us? I'll say it again. This call to be salt and light sits on the foundation of the Beatitudes. We cannot forget that. So, if we want to be salt, let's promote what's good by standing up for the kid at school who's getting bullied or speaking up for the coworker that everyone likes to talk bad about when they're not in the room. That's being merciful. To the one being mistreated. That's hungry and thirsting for righteousness. Standing up for what is good. And there's there's a chance that you'll be mistreated. For doing what's right. And just like that. Three beatitudes in one action. And blessing comes from that. Deep, complete happiness comes from that. to be light, to display the goodness of God. What if what if we put that on display by being poor in spirit and instead of doubling down, we admit when we've messed up and wronged somebody. We don't try to sweep it under the rug or just kind of assume that it'll disappear, but instead we pursue true peace and we apologize and we try to make it right. I mean, when was the last time somebody apologized to you? Other than the people that live in my home, I can't remember the last time. I cannot remember the last time somebody came to me and said, hey, I'm sorry for what I did. How countercultural would it be if in your place of work or if in your neighborhood, you apologized to someone you wronged, displaying the goodness of God, pursuing peace with them. One very real way that I've seen a lot of you be salt and light in this community is by opening up your homes and showing mercy to kids in the foster care system who who need a home for a while. Talk about putting the goodness of God on display. And these things, they aren't always easy and they, they aren't always fun, but... To effectively be salt and light, we need to embody the Beatitudes in a practical way. That's when we are really displaying what is good and and how we really promote and preserve what is good. But this doesn't just happen. You know, as soon as Jesus saves us or as soon as we start following him, we don't all of a sudden just do this perfectly. We can easily get distracted and lose our saltiness or, or intentionally hide our light. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 5.13 where he says, But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. No longer good for anything. Chuck it. Get rid of it. Throw it out. It's garbage. Because what is unsalty salt? I mean think about it. what is unsalty salt? It's like bad white sand. What good is that? Chuck it out, it's just taking up room in the cupboard. If salt loses what's distinctive about it, it's no longer good for anything. Living according to the Beatitudes, living according to Jesus' kingdom values is what is supposed to be distinctive about us as his people. And if we step away from that, if I step away from showing meekness, if I step away from showing mercy, if I stop prioritizing being pure in heart, what good am I in promoting God's kingdom? There's a similar idea here with light. Verse 14 and 15, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. The thought of someone lighting a lamp, lighting an oil lamp, and putting it under a bowl (laughs) is absurd. It completely defeats the purpose of lighting a lamp in the first place. But I have a confession for you this morning. I have been in some ways literally doing this since I walked out here this morning. I have literally been lighting up the lint in my pocket. What good has this been doing? It's been worthless. It's been worthless. And it's absurd when we think about it. Why I would leave the flashlight on on my phone in my pocket. And yet, we do this type of thing in daily life. Jesus calls us to let our light shine and then we go to hang out with some friends and like, ah, I don't want them to think I don't have a sense of humor. So, I'll just laugh at that joke. Even though it's, you know, kind of sexist and racist. Oh, it's Sunday. Let's go to church. Let's go praise Jesus. Work on Monday. I just heard the boss say something that isn't really true to one of our customers. But reviews are coming up and that means raises are being evaluated. And So I'll just pretend I didn't hear it. Small group tonight. There we go. Oh, my kid's soccer game. I mean, someone's got to tell the ref he's not doing a good job. <laughs> and so, as absurd as it see, seems when we see it literally play out, we pull our flashlights out. We let our lights shine when... It's convenient when we think it will benefit us, when we see some good in it for us. But really, what are we doing then? We're not letting our light shine for Jesus. We're not putting his kingdom, the better kingdom first. We're putting our own kingdom first. I'm putting myself first, my reputation first, my bank account first, my comfort first. I'm putting something of mine first. Or maybe, maybe I just lack the courage to stand up for what's right, to display what's good. Or maybe, or maybe I, I'm just falling back into these sinful patterns that I've, I've had, that I, that I wrestle against. And, and there's grace for this. But the point of these verses is this. Jesus puts us in places on purpose. He put you in your neighborhood on purpose. He put you with that employer on purpose. He put you in that dorm on purpose. He put you in that class on purpose because he knows that those places need salt and they need light. And that's why he put you there to bring more of God's goodness to those places. Look again closely at what Jesus calls us here in verses 13 and 14. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Jesus didn't leave us here for ourselves. He left us here. He left his church here for the sake of of the world, salt of the earth, light of the world. Look, I've eaten a lot of meals in my life. And not a single time have I ever seen anyone take that first bite of food and do that like, oh yeah, that's delicious face. And put their fork down and go, wow, that, that salt is amazing. Salt is not for itself. It is for seasoning and preserving the food. In the same way, we aren't here for ourselves. Jesus didn't leave us here for the good of ourselves, but for the good of the world. And the same thing with light. Contrary to what my kids seem to believe often, there's no reason to leave a light on in a room where no one is. The light is there to help others. Right, It's not there for its own sake to burn bright. It's there to illuminate the room. To show the way. To show where the coffee table is so you don't find it with your toes. That's what the light's there for. It's not there for itself. And yet we can fall into this line of thinking so easily. To look at something like our job. And be so thankful that God blessed us with that job and stop there. That God blessed me with that job. And not think about the fact that maybe God wants to bless this company with me. Not because I'm so awesome at what I do, but with God's goodness on display. And bringing more of God's goodness there. Yes, God blesses us in a thousand different ways, in a thousand different places. But ultimately, when God puts us in places and puts us in contexts, it's because he sees that those places need salt and those places need light. And these are my people, and that's where I'm sending them. Every context God puts you in, he wants you to promote and display his goodness. That's even true when we find ourselves in places we do not want to be. When we find ourselves in a hospital room with a loved one. When we find ourselves driving to the unemployment office, no matter where we find ourselves, God wants us to take his salt and to be his light into those places. It's part of the job description of following Jesus. And beyond that, He put Mission Point here in this community for a reason. If this community isn't better as a direct result of us being here, what are we doing? If Mission Point disappeared tomorrow, if every one of us packed up and moved somewhere warmer where it doesn't snow in April, what parts of this community would be hurt? Where would there be less good in this community? Where would it be darker? Where would the effects of sin make gains if we weren't here? Look, I definitely think that there are ways that we as a church are salt and light in this community. But we cannot take that for granted. As a church and as individuals, we need to keep working and keep doing good deeds to put the goodness of God on display. And that is what puts the goodness of God on display. Jesus makes it clear here. It's our publicly visible good deeds. It's not convincing arguments. It's not moral judgments. Those don't make the positive impact on the world that Jesus is talking about. He's saying our good deeds deeds do when we embody the beatitudes and live out the goodness that comes from that but with that we need to pump the brakes for a second because Jesus here very clearly says that people should see our good deeds don't hide that light under a bowl put those good works out there in the open but in the very next chapter, just a few minutes later, in the same message that Jesus is presenting, the same teaching he's giving to his disciples, Jesus says this, Matthew 6, 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. Then just a little bit later, talks about don't let your, your Left hand, know what your right hand is giving. When you go to pray, don't do it out in public. Do it in a closet. Hide. So what are we supposed to do with this? What gives? Are we supposed to be seen or not? The point Jesus is trying to make here comes at the end of verse 16, chapter 5, verse 16, where he says that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Not, as it says in, in 6.1, practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them, period. But rather, these good deeds are supposed to point to and lead people to glorify God. It's not about them seeing how good we are. It's about seeing seeing how good God is. This happened with Jesus over and over and over again. He would heal someone and people wouldn't respond by talking about how awesome Jesus was. They glorified God. In Mark 2, Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed in front of a crowd of people. The man couldn't walk and Jesus told him, get up, take up your mat and walk. And the man got up, took up his mat and walked, completely healed. And the response of the crowd, Mark 2, 12, they were all amazed and glorified God. Same thing in Luke 7, when Jesus raised a young man from the dead at his funeral. There's a crowd there for the funeral. And Jesus is like, pause. He's not done yet. Raise him back up. And it says in Luke 7, 16, that the crowd was there and they glorified God. One of Jesus' disciples, Peter, echoed the same idea when he wrote 1 Peter 2.12. He said, Live such good lives among the Gentiles, those who, who don't follow Jesus, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Our good deeds are supposed to highlight how glorious God is. And Peter Experience that on multiple occasions. One of them in Acts chapter 3 where Peter and John, one of the other disciples, are going to the temple to pray. And as they get close to the temple, there's a man there who is paralyzed. And he's begging for money. Peter and John say, look, we don't have any money. Like, we, we can't give you any money. But what we do have, we will give to you. In the name of Jesus, Walk. They healed him. This man's response, Acts 3, 8. He jumped up to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Peter heals this man, and his response was to praise God. God's people bring good, and God gets the glory. That's how it's supposed to work. And at times, people in the Bible, people now, they miss it. They start thinking about how great we are. And the temptation is to let them talk about how great we are. But throughout the Bible, you see Jesus' followers making it clear. No, 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 it's not about me. Let me tell you about him. Let me give glory to him. Now, now think about this for a second. If the good that we bring to the world, that Jesus is talking about here, brings others to glorify God, That means that the world recognizes these things as good too. The world recognizes our good deeds as good. You know, having having small children, sometimes we've had challenges, getting them to eat their vegetables. I'm sure none of you can relate. And for some reason we think, They're good for you is a good rationale. Like like their objection is about the nutritional value of the vegetables. And so they're good for you. And we try to squeeze some, you know, carrots down their throat or something. But sometimes that's how we kind of act with this. Where we think forcing our way on people and being like, it's good for you. This is what's good is actually going to be helpful and fruitful. But when we embody... The Beatitudes, when we come with meekness and mercy, when we come as peacemakers, more often than not, it's received as good by people. It's experienced as good by them. I mean, not everyone, but generally speaking, the world will see our good deeds and agree that they're good. Think back to some of the examples I used earlier. That classmate who's being bullied or, or the coworker who's being talked about behind their back. You stand up for them. How do they experience that? They experience it as good. Going to someone that you've wronged and humbling ourselves and apologizing to them, making peace with them, that's experienced as good. So when we embody the Beatitudes, we are salt and light to a world that desperately needs both. And in displaying and promoting God's goodness in these ways, we will be displaying and promoting Jesus as well. Because Jesus is the ultimate salt of the earth and the true light of the world. As salt, Jesus came to make this world a better place. To make us better <laughs> He came to promote what is good and push back the rot of sin and death. He came and gave his life to preserve our lives from death. And he is making all things new, making them better and perfect once again. And Jesus, as he said of himself in John is the true light of the world. Jesus came to show us what is truly good and purely good to light our path, to lead us back to God. He did this through his teaching, but he also did it through his example of living for the good of others. By showing us that self-sacrifice and good deeds bring glory to God. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the true salt of the earth. And so we represent him to this world when we embody the Beatitudes and our salt and light and and showing people Jesus, pointing them to Jesus, sharing with them about Jesus is the best good that we can bring to anyone in this world. A few years ago, I was able to take a couple of trips to the Middle East to serve a church in the country of Jordan that was probably the best example of salt and light that I have ever seen. This church was in the city of Mafraq. And Mafraq was about 60,000 people. And it was right next to the Syrian border. And by right next to the border, I mean from the roof of the church, you could see Syria. Now, this church was only about 60 or 70 people. And while Jordan is about 90% Muslim, and there are some laws about what Christians can and can't say or do in public, overall, they're fairly tolerant of Christians most of the time. Well, several, several years ago, 40 or so families crossed the border from Syria into Jordan because of ISIS and the war that was raging there. when they crossed the border, the first town they came to was Mafrak. The church leaders caught wind about these refugee families coming and they sought them out. They proactively went to them to see how they could help. After meeting with them and hearing their stories, this church stepped up in a big way and started delivering mattresses and blankets, food, medicine, diapers, and formula to the homes of these 40 families. More than that, they came with friendship and relationship. They kept coming back to visit, to check on them, to see how they were doing, to see what else they might need, knowing that these people had left everything and everyone that they had ever known as they ran for their lives. But those 40 families were just the beginning the war in syria got worse and worse and worse and over the course of, of just 2 years mafrak that city of 60,000 people added 100,000 refugees from syria 60,000 to 160,000 people in this one city you know how the church responded They kept doing what they had from the beginning. They opened their doors. They opened their hearts. They opened their wallets to give whatever they could to these people who literally came with only what they could carry. This church was embodying the Beatitudes. And believe me, they, they were so blessed. They were so completely, unshakably, deeply happy. They had this kind of happiness because they were quick to extend mercy to people in need. They were completely happy because they sat with hurting people and mourned with them. They were completely happy because the leaders in this church, they experienced some measure of persecution. Some people spread lies about them around town. The government was unsure what to do with all these refugees all coming to this one place. And so they, several times, called in the leadership to their version of the FBI for questioning. One of them spent a night or two in jail for handing someone a Bible in public. But they kept going. They kept going because they knew that they were doing exactly what God wanted them to do. They knew that God had them there for this reason to care for their neighbors who were in need, no matter how many came knocking on their door. And you know what God did? God saw their faithfulness. He saw how brightly their light was shining. And God said, you keep shining your light, and I promise I will not let you run out of fuel. I will supply everything you need. Donations. Started coming in from all over the world. Volunteers started showing up from all over the globe. Some like me and the team that I went with for a couple of weeks. Others came and stayed for years. And this church, they kept giving. They kept giving hundreds of thousands of pounds of food. Tens of thousands of mattresses and blankets and pillows. Thousands of hours Thousands of tears, sitting in homes with people, hearing their stories, answering their questions about Jesus. I was able to go on a number of these visits while I was there. And I'm telling you, these stories were absolutely gut-wrenching. Women who didn't know if their husbands were still alive, because when the bomb started falling, they ran, and they ran in opposite directions. They hadn't seen their husband in two years. They had no way of making contact, no way of knowing if he was safe men telling stories of being tortured in prison parents telling stories of how they've lost young children in bombings you could see the physical mental and emotional wounds and scars on these on these people and the church kept Going, God continued to supply all that they needed. After hearing the stories of trauma and loss and devastation, they began to offer group counseling to help people mourn and process the horrible things that they had witnessed and been through. And you know what ended up happening over time? As they kept continually, continually embodying these beatitudes. Everyone around started to realize how much good this church was doing a large relief agency was going to go into mofrak to help they heard about 100,000 refugees and said we need to go in to help but they showed up and they saw this church and they were like you guys got this covered anything we do would be redundant so here's a half million dollars this year we'll call you next year and see how, if you see what else you may need the church kept going kept giving Hardly any of the refugee kids were going to school. So the church hired some teachers and started a school for a couple hundred kids. Someone in California who doesn't believe in Jesus heard about this and paid to have a really nice brand new playground delivered and installed at the school. It was about this time that the Jordanian government sent some officials to knock on the church's door. It was the police chief. It was the top security officer at an army base nearby. And it was a couple other high-ranking officials. They came, they knocked on the door of the church. And they offered to do a walkthrough of the church to help them shore up some of their security things and place security cameras in the right places because they had so many people there. They had so many resources there. They knew that if this church wasn't safe, then then it would be bad for the entire community. And so these government officials who had previously hauled them in for questioning, who had put them in prison for a couple days, they came to the church saying, how can we help you? This church was putting the goodness of God on display and everyone around could see it. They tangibly saw the love of God because this little church had a big heart. And big faith. And they weren't willing to see people in need and go, oh, let's, let's put a bowl over our light. They said, no, let's shine brighter. Let's get more salt out there, promoting more and more good. What about us? What about us? You know, it may not be that dramatic. There may not be a civil war next door, but what about us? Are we as a church putting God's goodness on display in our community through our good deeds? Do we have big hearts for people and big faith that God wants to glorify himself through our good works here? Is our community better because Mission Point Community Church is here? That God has placed us here. Is our community better? And would the people within our community say that? Would they say, I may not believe in your God. I may not believe everything you say, but this town, I can't deny, this town is better because you guys are here. Would they say that about us? And what about you personally? Are the places you live, the places you work, the groups that you're a part of, are they better because of you? Is more of God's goodness on display there? Is more of God's goodness promoted and preserved in those places? Are you being salt and light in the context God has placed you in? Jesus has given us this call to be salt and light. Let's get to it. And God, we pray that you would help us in that. That God, you would give us eyes to see places that are dark, places that sin has started to wreak havoc and, and, and decay. And that God, we would go to those places and we would be your representatives, representatives there. That we would show the love of your son who came to this place where sin was wreaking havoc who came to my life where sin was wreaking havoc and shone his light and made a way for us to be right with you. God, may we live lives that are blessed because we put your kingdom first. God, may that be true of us as individuals and may that be true of us as a church for your glory and your glory alone. We thank you so much for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.